Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your concerns, your questions, your inquiries, and your comments on tennis and other things. About 24 hours ago, I posted in the YouTube community tab another record. About 170 of you commented. That is so many comments. Thank you guys. I also tweeted so the Twitter folks can get involved. I got some complaints uh, for the Twitter people who don't check the community tab. They say you got to tweet. So I tweeted and we will get, we will hear from the people of Twitter. You can follow me at Gil Gross on the Twitter platform. I uh, really appreciate all the engagement on this. If your comment does not get into the show, I will do my very best to respond afterwards just by replying um, that it's the least I can do because I do appreciate all the engagement. I know that I will not be able to get to everyone here. Uh, so let us begin with Twitter. And I will pull that up now. Uh, first one from Brandon Daniels. What do you think the chances are that the next gen group, Titsipas team, et cetera, et cetera, wins at least two Grand Slams next year? Well, I think two is a pretty good over-under. I think that's, if I were to set the odds, maybe it would be one and a half, but it'd be one and a half or two, and I think that they have a chance. I would warn, I would warn against taking these big three major titles for granted. They are not going to be easy to come by. This this next generation is a lot better than previous challenging generations. And my evidence for that, and what I would say to those who really don't believe it. And by the way, I don't blame you if you don't believe it, because some people, not really me. I haven't picked against a member of the big three to win a major title since, I mean, in, in so long. It's been so, so long. I thought I would, I kind of picked Dominic Team, but I really didn't at the U.S. Open. I picked Djokovic. So it has been, I can't even remember. Anyway, a lot of people have, of course, said this before. But this time, you know, it, it's real. And all you got to do is look at the top 10. In 2018, the top 10 was old. John Isner, Marin Cilic, Juan Martin Del Potro. Uh, I don't know who else I am missing. Besides Alexander Zverev, who was in there already. The top 10 was old. Now look at the top 10. These are all players who are only going to get better. The top 10 is, is extremely young. And if you look at the U.S. Open, you look at the final eight in the U.S. Open. It was the youngest quarterfinal in a major since 2011, either 2011 or 2010. I know it's one of those years at the Australian Open. You look at this French Open, Yannick Sinner, a teenager in the quarterfinals. Look at the list of teenagers who have made uh, major quarterfinals. It's a pretty small list, and it's a pretty good list. So I would say you will get one or two next-gen major titles next year. I think that is pretty safe. Scroll down here. Next one from Andras. Um, what about if Rafa shows up in London unexpectedly? Almost all other players hunt for points to get there. He doesn't need, uh, need that. He can rest for one month, arrive relaxed and healthy. Plus, he has a mental psychological edge versus Djokovic, who may skip. Rafa has the best shot to win this year. I don't think he's going to play. That is my I know he's hinted at that and his his team has said that they're not really sure what the plan is going to be and I spoke about it with Steve Flink at the very end of our interview. I think we're both in agreement that Nadal should probably just wait until the Australian Open next year to play again. He needs to limit especially the hard court tennis that he plays, preserve his body for the Grand Slams and this is a time of year that just doesn't really matter very much for any reason. He is very unlikely to finish year-end number one, so that is something that's sometimes meaningful, but this this year it really looks like it's going to be Novak Djokovic. It, it would be very hard for Nadal to catch Novak, especially on his least favorite surface, indoor hardcourt. Without a major in sight until the Australian Open, there's very little incentive for Nadal to play. And we know that playing during a global pandemic is just more cumbersome in the first place. Having to deal with 
the potential that you could get this virus. You have to travel. You have to get tested at the sites. Uh, just the nightmare story that we've heard of with Sam Query, which I don't want to get in the weeds in with the Sam Query story. But if you haven't heard, and I'm sure we'll get more details, but Query tested positive and he was in St. Petersburg when he tested positive. He was very much ready to stay two weeks in a five-star hotel in St. Petersburg. But Russian authorities said, if you have symptoms, we reserve the right to send you to the hospital. Basically against your will is what it sounds like. So Query, who is with his wife and his uh, child, or perhaps children, I don't know if it's child or children, they were like, whoa, uh, okay, let's get out of here. And they skedaddled on a private jet. And we don't know where they are right now because they're in a secret location. I, I laugh because it's a story that like you can't you can't make this you know what up. Anyway, my point is it's a very difficult time to tour the world and play tennis right now. And I don't see much incentive for Rafa Nadal to do it. And by far, the World Tour Finals is just his worst possible uh, combination of conditions there. Talk about low bouncing. Um, Game to Love Tennis Podcast. Which nation has the best prospects? Italy, Russia, USA. Good one. Italy has the single best prospect, I believe, in Yannick Sinner. But Russia has the best uh, triumvirate. For sure. Uh, Medvedev, Rublev, Hachinov is like just a tremendous combination. And you could see that with ATP Cup earlier in the year. Remember, ATP Cup, you generally just have your top two players. And Rublev, according to the rankings, was not a top three player. He actually was. Just in the rankings, he wasn't. So couldn't play ATP Cup. And that he was the best player by far who couldn't really play that event in singles at least. He could have played doubles, but he doesn't want to do that. Um, so I think that just went to show that Russia has the best trio. Musetti, I'm still, by the way, I'm still not like completely 100%. I need to see more Musetti. I'm not, I, I don't think I have a good read on what his potential really is, but I do think he's very much not, even ready physically and he doesn't seem particularly close physically so i'm not sure what he is yet this one from sebastian should any one of the next gen players be able to reach legendary status by winning 15 to 20 majors do you think that this player will never be able to reach the status of the big three by virtue of the fact that the big three played against each other in their own era well yes it is true that the big three pushed each other and roger federer in congratulating rafael nadal after uh, on, on social media, after Nadal won the French and tied Roger with 20 majors, he said, I think we've pushed each other. And I believe that to be true. Very much true. Just like siblings will push each other. That's why you see a lot of siblings who are, you know, both strong at, at a given sport. Oftentimes the younger sibling is better because the older sibling beat him up and whipped him into shape. But I do believe that is true. However, I don't, think that has to, has anything to do with the answer to my to this question which is no i don't think that any of the next gen players are federer djokovic or nadal i think that's abundantly clear now that doesn't mean that they're not going to start to beat diminished versions of federer djokovic and nadal i'm not saying right now they're entirely diminished but i'm saying they will be at at a certain point that is going to happen and then just because, and, and then look, they're, they're going to lose to some people. They're going to lose some tennis matches. They're going to lose some major finals, some semifinals, some matches that we are so used to them pulling out. But at this point in time, it is clear none of them are all-time generational greats, with the exception of perhaps Yannick Sinner, who is, it's a little bit too young to tell for Sinner. Because Federer and Djokovic... For example, you know, they didn't really emerge. Sampras didn't really emerge until, you know, a little bit a little bit later on. When did Sampras... Sampras won the U.S. Open really young, but then he took two years to really be consistently great. I don't know. 
this one, I'm not going to pronounce this name. I'd rather not say the name than mispronounce it. Still not sold on Rublev. He is too one-dimensional. What is his prognosis for the next four slams? Can he make a final? Yeah, this was a big one. Rublev gets blown out by Tsitsipas in the quarterfinal at the French straight sets. And people are like, oh, Rublev is one-dimensional. Sure, fine. I see where you're coming from if you're going to call Rublev one-dimensional. Let me just say this. That one dimension, it's a really good dimension. I'd love to have that dimension. Many players would love to have that dimension. I mean, we're talking just sustained aggression off both wings from the baseline. Consistent, powerful, finds great angles, gets great RPM, unbelievable racket speed, good Solid, fluid movement. Good returner. It's a good dimension. I, I like that dimension. That dimension is going to take him very far. I get what you're saying. He doesn't have a backhand slice. He doesn't hit a drop shot. He, he doesn't have great volleys. He does need to improve that for sure, the transition game. He needs to get to a point where he can hit an approach shot and go to the net. Don't get me wrong. Um, yeah, the, the defense could be a little bit better. The serve needs to get better. But there's there's time for that to happen. The point is his foundation is incredibly strong. Um, Mazel Tov on over 7K followers from Amy. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> Caleb uh, says, Will we ever see another performance like Gaston versus Team? Well, Gaston didn't win was the only thing. Do you mean like drop shot after drop shot after drop shot? That was one of the more memorable and entertaining matches that that I can recall. So um, I don't know. I hope so. I hope we see more performances like that from Hugo Gaston. I really hope that we see more of him uh, because God, that was really that was really fun to watch. I don't know if you if that's what you meant by the question. What, just drop shot every ball? Is that the performance? I hope we see that again. Lynn Knott asks, do you think Stefano Tsitsipas should bring in another coach uh, either instead of or in addition to his father? My short answer to that is yes. I kind of do think... I, I do think that... Um, he should look into that. Um, just because I think it's always good to get different voices and to experiment and to tinker. And I mean, so far it, it just seems like, look, he's getting better and better, but it seems like that might be wise. I don't have much to back that up. It's kind of a gut. It's kind of a feeling, but I would say it's a bias towards trying new things and to getting, you know, uh, more voices and opinions in your ear. And Tsitsipas is a guy who seems really coachable. He, he seems like he's someone who likes to work on himself and likes to change things. He's shown far more evidence, for example, than uh, Sasha Zverev has, that he really wants to, that he's really willing to make changes and look, you know, deep within what he's doing within his own camp. So I'd like to see him bring in other people. Um, Saddam, Djokovic's last three final performances have been underwhelming. Got lucky against Fed, serve-botted his way out of trouble against team, and then received that thrashing from Rafa. Well, I don't think he got lucky against Fed. I don't know what was lucky there. Serve-botted against team. He was steadier than team. And I mean, he had a he had a... A dip in that match. He wasn't very good for a portion of that match. But then when he had to be good, he was good. And he was very good in the first set. So I don't fully agree with the assessment. But we'll get more into the state of Novak Djokovic very, uh, I think, with other comments. Um, look. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to save it. I'm going to save it for, for a little bit later. Can Nadal provide a challenge to Fed Djokovic now again on hard courts, especially Djokovic? 
Uh, his ATP Cup second set felt like he might be solving some of the issues and now probably has a bit more confidence. Man, I'm just, I want to see it. I have more questions than answers, and I know the vast majority of the comments I received for this mailbag is about this topic. It's what can Djokovic do? Excuse me. What can Nadal do against Djokovic when they play next time on a hard court? And I'll be interested to see if Nadal does what he did with court position in this match. If he brings that to the hard court, I think there's a good chance he may. Um, I will be interested to see what happens with the serve return dynamic when they play on a quicker court next time. Because I always go back to, or recently, I've been going back to the Wimbledon 2018 semifinal. Because I got, I've been getting this question for so long and so often, ever since I've started the mailbag, that's the number one thing that people ask about is what does Nadal need to do to crack the code against Djokovic on hard courts where he hasn't beaten him since the 2013 U.S. Open final? I'm I know that's the case in best of five. I'm pretty sure it's the case in best of three. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong about that. But the answer has always been change, go down the line with your forehand if you're Nadal, as soon as possible, try to avoid getting into that cross-court exchange for any extended period of time. You need to be the first to change direction and go down the line on the backhand. Use the short backhand slice down the line um, and really just try to you know stay on the um, offensive as much as possible. But it's also just around that serve-return dynamic, which he lost really badly in that Wimbledon match. And he needs to win that because he knows what he needs to do. He knows what he needs to do from the baseline. He's got those patterns down. These guys have played each other over 50 times. They understand that. But, it, you know, at a certain point, it comes down to execution on the serve and the return. And I, I need to shout out someone who uh, I've already answered uh, his question in this mailbag, but I'll shout out um, Caleb uh, Pereira, who put together the metrics for me on return um, for uh, on clay for Nadal against Djokovic. And he put together all their meetings at Roland Garros. And the numbers show that Nadal consistently puts more serves in play than Djokovic does at the French Open. He makes a higher percentage of his returns than Djokovic at the French Open. And I don't think that that's a matter of Nadal of Djokovic being more offensive on the return and not Nadal being more passive. I just don't think that's what this is about. I think it's probably that Nadal is a better returner than Djokovic on clay. And this is something that I know that I've pondered both on this channel and with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy on three. And I, I've pondered it. I haven't reached a conclusion, but... When the when the stats are laid out in front of you and you combine the stats with the knowledge that Nadal is not more passive than Djokovic on the return, I think the numbers do speak for themselves in this case. We continue on. Almost done with Twitter. Almost time to go to YouTube. Should there be a year-end number one this year since 70% of tour-level events were not played this year and because of the new rankings point system? You know, I don't know how they're deciding year-end number one. Are they doing it based on the race to London, which would be who accumulated the most points in 2020? Or are they doing it on the ranking system, which would be who ends 2020 as the number one ranked player in the world? By my calculations, that could be two different players. I can't answer this question because I don't actually know how they're doing it. Should there be a year-end number one, though? I guess my my thought is yes. I, I, would, I think whoever ends this year with the most points deserves to be rewarded for that. I mean, I don't think they should just skip a year. What is the slam count for the big three after the 2021 season concludes? I'm going to pass on that one. How much does having been a top two player in two different eras mean for Nadal in the GOAT debate? Surely Novak and Roger can't say that. 
I don't know. I'm going to also pass on that one because that's just another thing where it's like for all three players, you can you can put any basically there's a bunch of spins that you can put on different things that are going to look good for all three players. So it's just a matter of your perspective and what you try to do and how you try to crunch the numbers and twist them and qualify them and you will find you will find plenty of things that one of them did that the other two didn't. You will find that no matter all you got to do is look hard enough and you will do it. What are the things that Yannick Sinner could improve in the next 12 months? And do you think he could be top 10 by the end of next year? How do you see his quality of play compared to the one Zverev and Tsitsipas played at his age? Physical, physical, physical. That's going to be in the gym. It's going to be in the weight room. It's going to be with his fitness trainer. That's it for Yannick Sinner. He, he just, he does not look like a top 10 pro yet physically he's just got to get there it's the same thing that alexander zverev has needed to do and actually has done a nice job of it's really been the tennis that has not developed in uh in the most ideal way for for zverev but physically he's developed quite nicely um but yeah similar to that case he's just got to get in the gym plain and simple he's got to get stronger could you rank criteria for the GOAT status? Don't feel like doing that. Where's your money on? Shapo, Steph, Rublev, Medvedev, Zverev for most titles or finals next year from the hashtag NowGen. Well, let me just say, by the way, we really need as a tennis community, we need to come together and we need to make a decision about what we are calling the generations. I mean, we, we need to figure this out because... We need to stop calling Tsitsipas, Medvedev, and, and Zverev. We need to stop calling them next-gen, okay? They're getting old. As Stefano Tsitsipas said, I am a proper adult. They are. They, they are proper adults, people. So what do we do? Are we moving the next-gen label down? Are we saying whoever qualifies for that Vienna next-gen tournament, are they next-gen? So now next-gen just changes? No, I think we need to call them a new generation that way, I mean, think about it. Like for baby boomers, they are baby boomers for life. They don't become not baby boomer boomers. So we need to figure out what we're doing here. Is Sinner next gen? Is he not next gen? I don't know. Okay. Glad you came to my TED talk. Most titles out of those guys. 2021. I think... Good, really good question. I think Tsitsipas, if he can, if he can get it together, because I think he's got the game to do it, and he's figuring things out with his head. I know he's constantly just trying to get to the right place mentally and tinkering. And I was very encouraged by the French Open that he had. Um, so it could be Zverev. He, it could be Zverev, I think, or Tsitsipas. I think for Zverev, it's more about, um. How's his second serve? How's his forehand? And for Tsitsipas, it's how's his mental? I'd I'd put my money on Tsitsipas in 2021. I think he's uh he's really becoming super dangerous. Okay, clearly the next one. Clearly the long layoff has benefited Rafa's knees, but he hasn't been troubled for a long time now. What miracles are at work here? Well, I would say this: it hasn't been as long as you think it has. I mean, 2018 was not that long ago. It's only two years ago. So, sure, Nadal has gone a couple seasons now without having knee tendonitis flare up on him. But knock on wood, that's not. It's not all. It's not too long. If you look at Nadal's career, it has tended to, you know, pop up, go away, pop up, go away. That's kind of what's happened. So, this, uh, in theory, is no different. Many tweets, folks. Many tweets. We got to get to YouTube soon. 2021, Federer last year? I don't know. Owen at Tennis Nation asks, uh, which Nadal-Djokovic Roland Garros final was Djokovic's best chance of winning? 2012, where he had momentum in the fourth. 2014, where he won the first set. Or 2020, where the conditions looked to be favorable. Well, in 2012, he would have had to come down come back from um two sets to none. I know I know he had a ton of momentum with the 
low bouncing conditions because the court was wet, but I don't think he was going to win that. No, I don't think that was happening. 2014 probably is the answer here. Um, but I don't know why we would just limit that to finals because we all know that it was really 2013 in the semifinal where, where Novak had his chance, his best chance, and required Nadal to play incredible tennis in the fifth and was really t tight and had his chances in the fourth set. So it was that was really the year. Um, but also, I, I do reserve, I think other people... I'm interested to know. I know that people replied. Someone said, uh, this is a no-brainer. No question 2012. Djokovic had won the previous three majors, beating Nadal in all three of them. Novak was in Nadal's head. Novak's confidence was sky high, and he was injury-free. Okay, that's a different way to look at it. So this person, PJ Sport, is saying um, "Not it's not about the match. It's about the form coming in. Okay. Does slam distribution actually matter? Uh, I think so. I like surface versatility. That's great. I like that. One surface dominance is great too. They're both cool. They're both great. Only a couple more here. Okay. This one from In It, In It Forever. In It Forever. The narrative around recency bias. When Novak crushed Nadal at AO19, he was the next one to demolish the records. The difference is still three. Can one loss change prediction altogether? Nadal was always expected to win RG anyway. Oh yeah, yeah. People should. People have recency bias. It's it's. A, you know, I was gonna say it's an epidemic, but I should really shy away from casually using these phrases um, with the state that we're in. But uh, yeah, I re people have bad, bad, bad recency bias. I will try my best not to have that, and to stay calm. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, think about what people thought when when Djokovic um, hit the lines judge at the U.S. Open. I mean, people were saying that this was like this big roadblock in Novak's career. No, it's not. It's just going to go win Rome. Then he's going to make the final of Roland Garros. It's not going to be this big roadblock. So yeah, people overreact to singular results. Last one is from Vamos Girl. Will... Uh, Nitro finals, Nitto finals happen with rising COVID. Haven't heard if Rafa will be going to London and any news on PTPA, the Players Association. I haven't heard anything about the PTPA. Um, I hear the next gen finals is in danger, but I don't have any original or factual reports to offer you on that one, unfortunately. All right, let us go to the YouTube community tab. Starting with Marco, I don't know how much uh, overlap there will be with uh, the Twitter comments that I just read and the YouTube stuff. I'm not sure how much there's going to be. Okay. This is the first time Djokovic has lost to Nadal at a slam since the French Open in 2014. Do you think this win, especially being the final, can give Nadal confidence against Djokovic at the other slams and surfaces? I don't think this is about confidence. I don't think this is really very mental. I think this is about forehands and backhands, so to speak. And I say that figuratively, not literally. I think this is about technique. This is about tactics. This is about what's happening on the tennis court. This isn't mental. Example, uh, Nadal beat Djokovic very handedly in Rome last year. That doesn't mean that Djokovic took the court against Nadal at the ATP Cup this year and wasn't confident. No, I think he felt very confident given the way he's beaten Nadal on hard courts consistently. So if Nadal beats Djokovic next time they play on a hard court or a grass court, I don't think it's going to have anything to do with the 2020 French Open final. It's going to have to do with Nadal playing better tennis and, and finding a plan. And I mentioned this earlier in the mailbag, so I'm not going to repeat myself, but this is going to be about Nadal flipping the serve return dynamic and um, probably defending a little bit better than he did at this year's ATP Cup and go, you know, being confident, having a great forehand day and being aggressive on the backhand and just, you know, playing really good tennis. That's what it's going to be about. I'm 
now, I don't want to sell this short. I am so eager to see the next time they play on a hard court. I'm so fascinated by that. I really want to see how Djokovic handles it, how Nadal handles it. I mean, I I can't wait. I can't wait to see that, assuming it assuming we will see it. Um so I don't want to just completely write it off and say there's nothing to see here. There is something to see. I would just caution against the confidence narrative. I mean, what is it? Um, again, they have played over 50 times. Djokovic has a slight edge in the head-to-head. They both know they can beat each other. This isn't about confidence, really. I, I just don't think it's about that. The reason Djokovic hasn't lost to Nadal on hardcourt in very, very long is because it's a bad matchup for Nadal on hardcourt that he needs to overcome. That's why. It's not about confidence, I don't think. In my humble opinion, it's not about confidence. This one from Max. Hi, Gil. Given his 2020 play, do you think Team is a better player on hard courts or on clay? I personally think he might be a more consistent player on clay, but hard courts really bring out his most lethal weapons, and he's had a more tangible success on hard than clay. What do you think is his next step in development? The reason this, the reason the last sentence is unfair, more tangible success on hard than clay is because he didn't really get to have a clay court season this year. What happened to Dominic Team is precisely the reason Rafa Nadal did not play the U.S. Open. Because Nadal didn't want that to happen. Plain and simple. Nadal, uh, Team didn't play any of the clay warm-ups. He didn't play Rome. Um, and, you know, that is, <laughs> that's the reason why. He didn't, he just was thrust into Roland Garros, had a tough draw, just seemed emotionally, mentally fatigued, and couldn't get it done against Diego. But do I think he's a better player on hard courts or clay? I think he's a better player on clay because he's a much better returner on clay. Is Australian Open 2021 a must-win for Novak to close the gap? If he doesn't, Rafa has a great shot at 21 or 22 at the French Open, not knowing what happens at Australia in Australia. So here's, I'm, I'm glad this was asked, but I can't answer this too directly. I can't. I simply, I don't know how to. Here is why. I do not feel any sort of confidence in predicting longevity. In fact, I went on um, Tamid Saleh's channel and he asked me this, this a similar question. Actually, the same question. Is 2021 a must-win for Novak to close the gap? And he also asked me, what do you think the, the slam race will finish as? And I answered it. I answered it. But I did so with no degree of confidence. Zero degree of confidence. Because longevity is so damn impossible to predict. Think about, think about it with Nadal. How could we have known that Rafa Nadal was going to get to 20? How could we have known that Roger Federer was going to get to 20? Because we had no way of knowing that they were going to play this well into their 30s. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care. You know, it didn't mean that if it was no reflection on how well you knew tennis. You just don't know. It, it is a total guessing game. Longevity is a guessing game to me. And smart tennis people thought they knew with Nadal. And they said, no, no, it's not about, it's not a guessing game. I know that Nadal is not going to last into his 30s because he trains too hard and he plays too physical a style. That's what they said. Didn't they say that? Hand up. I'm guilty. I am 100% guilty. If you asked me um, seven, eight years ago, I remember talking about this. I remember talking about this in 2012, you know, 2010. And, you know, I think I made a I made a bet with one of my good buddies. I think it was back in 20, I think it was back in 2012. I made a bet with a good buddy about who would finish the slam race. And I actually uh, said that Federer would finish ahead because I actually sold Nadal short in his ability to last. I said, I, I think Nadal is going to break down. I don't think, I think with all the injuries, he's not going to last. So I'll just say this. I learned my lesson. No more. No more predicting longevity. I don't know how long these guys are going to last. 
I don't know how Roger Federer is going to come back from his knee surgery. I don't know if Novak Djokovic is going to have one more two-year, three-year, four good years. So what's the answer to this question? What's the answer to this question? Is Australian Open 2021 a must-win for Novak to close the gap? That depends on what Novak's window is. If Novak's window is two years, it might be a must-win. If Novak's window is five years, then it's definitely not a must-win. You see how this gets hard? You see how you can't answer this? I want to give the answers. I really do. I don't want to just take a question and make an argument about why I can't answer the question. It's not what I want to do. But I also don't want to shoot fish in a barrel here. And I don't know how long Novak Djokovic has at the top. I will continue to make observations about the state of Novak Djokovic's game as it pertains to his aging. But that is all I can do. This next one from SJ. Do you foresee another change in the Nadal-Djokovic rivalry because of this win? Nadal lacked confidence against Djokovic because Djokovic trashes him seven times when he was at his worst in 2015-16. Since then, he hasn't gotten many opportunities for confidence-boosting wins. I think he played this tactically perfectly for the first time maybe since 2013. Do you foresee some Nadal wins on Jok- against Djokovic on hard courts and grass? How much does this hurt Djokovic's chances at reaching 20 Grand Slams? Okay, here's a bom- there's a bombardment of questions here, so let me take it one at a time. So the first one, uh, do you foresee some Nadal wins um, against Djokovic on hard courts and grass? I think that depends, again, I think that re- depends on the, the serve return dynamic. I think traditionally Novak has has just won that. But if Nadal can flip that around, and I think there have been points where Nadal has been serving bigger, and there have been points where Djokovic has been serving bigger, and it's just about, I really do think it mostly comes down to that. How much does uh, this hurt Djokovic's chances at reaching 20 Grand Slams? No more than any other loss. No more than any other loss. But if you're going to really lament, if, if Novak's going to look back at his summer and lament not getting you know, a Grand Slam, it's going to be about the U.S. Open. He's not going to lament this one as much because, in his words, Nadal, Nadal surprised him with how well he played. So I think he probably feels like it would have been really hard for him to win that match. The next one, do you agree Djokovic's fitness may be lacking a bit now and he's not dealing with it well? I'm not so sure I like the bigger second serve and drop shot strategy and his refusal to rally with Nadal, who we all know has lost 30% of his speed. In a Grand Slam final, that has to be concerning. He started trying to hit 100 mile per hour forehands in an attempt to hit through him, whereas in the past he'd embraced long points against his older worn down rival. Sorry for all the questions. So, first of all, I just want to legitimize your observations here. Now, 30% is a little bit too extreme in terms of Nadal's speed, but yes, his speed has declined. Uh, Refusal to play long rallies with Nadal. That is accurate. Watch that match. It's accurate. He just didn't want to do it, and there's no way to spin it. And I think a young Djokovic, or a younger Djokovic, and perhaps, uh, no, maybe it was, you don't know. Maybe it was purely a strategic decision, but maybe it was, um, maybe that tactic, it's all related, physical, tactical, they are completely related. If David Ferrer was out of shape, he could not grind, he could not play long rallies, it just wouldn't work. He would turn into, well, he would actually turn into a bad player if he was out of shape, but the point is, you're shot tolerance, your tactics closely related to your fitness. These things are very related. So um, who knows? Bigger second serve, drop shot. These are signs that Novak is looking at ways to make up for his decreased physicality, which he should be doing. I want to just hammer that home. It's a positive that he's doing these things. It would be more alarming if he wasn't doing these things. So first, I want to legitimize your observations here. They are true. But the point I want to make about Djokovic here is this. 
This is post-pandemic Djokovic. Why is that important? Because I feel Novak looked to be in much better shape before this pause. I think Novak looked to be in much better shape when he played so well um, at the ATP Cup. And then he went and he did have the weird energy dip against Dominic Team, But other than that, looked very good. Won the Australian Open. Um, and I think just throughout that stretch, I think Novak looked great. I think he looked to be in better shape than he's looked since. Let me just look at all of his uh, 2020 matches just so I get the, the full picture. I think he looked amazing in Dubai. Um... But then ever since then, and, you know, even in, in Cincinnati, think about the way he won Cincinnati. Think about the way he won Rome. Novak wasn't 100% in these tournaments. He won them ugly. He won them with, I mean, his assets, yes. But what was kind of uh, the takeaway from that is that Novak still has this unbelievable ability to win matches with his by being mentally tougher than his opponent, right? So let's kind of separate that, and let's see how he looks when he's got another off um, off season to recondition himself, in my opinion, he was incredible. He drew great motivation. He he drew motivation from this being the 2020 Tokyo Olympic year, and he wanted to be in tip top condition for those Tokyo Olympics. And the fact that the tour went on pause and. Then they, you know, they came back for the U.S. Open and there were uncertainty and Novak didn't even know how he was going to play. That's demotivating. And if Novak let himself get out of shape, it's no wonder that he is in worse condition when he comes back. So the observations you are making about Djokovic's fitness are 100% true. But let's reserve our judgment, perhaps until 2021, when we are not talking about Novak coming off of a unprecedented pause in the action coming back during a, you know, a global pandemic. So those are my long-winded comments. Andrew Brooks asks, should people shut the hell up about the GOAT debate until they retire? Probably. Alex James asks, Gil, what did you make out of Djokovic saying he was surprised by Rafa's level of play in the match? Surely he wouldn't have expected anything else from Rafa in a French Open final. I think if Novak were a little bit, you know, it's 50-50. I am surprised he said that. And when you first hear that, you kind of say like, how could you possibly be surprised? He's won the, he's won the thing 12, uh, he's won the thing 12 times. Now he had won it 13 from the, you know, after the post-game press conference, but coming in, Right. So how could you possibly be surprised coming into that match? Well, maybe it was just that astronomical. But it wasn't the level that Nadal reached that was so impressive. It was the period of time in which Nadal played it. And I honestly believe Djokovic was waiting for Nadal's level to drop. That is not atypical for tennis players. That happens all the time. Uh, players will often, uh, when they're playing, especially when... You know, Nadal has said it about Federer. Nadal has said, Nadal said in his autobiography that sometimes he just needs to wait for Federer to start playing worse. Otherwise, he's he's unbeatable for portions of time. And for really two and two and a half sets, Nadal was just flawless. It took until, I think I wrote a note, um, maybe it was at 2-1 in the third set. Nadal made multiple errors in a game. And I wrote, this is the first game where Nadal played like two bad points in a single game. Like, it was so absurd that I think we should give, maybe we should give Djokovic a break on this comment. Maybe we should say, yeah, it was that ridiculously good that I don't blame you for being surprised. With that being said, it did sound pretty funky. I can't deny it. Rainfred, Rainfred Romero, since it is the first time to break through the top 10, what are Schwartzman's abilities, uh, which are either aided by or compensate for his lack of height? 
the number one thing is movement. That is aided by his lack of height. Can't think of a lot of players. Can anyone, and you can comment it if you can think of it, can anyone think of a short player who doesn't move well? It's pretty pretty difficult to think of. Now, I would say Fabio Fanini is one guy who really rests on the laurels of his unbelievable ball striking. And he's not like much of a defensive wizard, but he's still very quick around the court. So Schwartzman is aided by his movement. Um, how does he compensate? Ability to take the ball off the rise. So he's got less power, but he still can be an offensive player. So we've talked about his defense. Unbelievable defensive skills. Just tremendous. But of course, you also need um, you need offense. And he does that by taking time away. He's so talented in his ability to take the ball off the rise. And that requires a superior level of timing and hand-eye coordination. It just does. It's so much harder to do. Anyone who plays tennis knows this. And if you get a, take a lower-level player, like let's say a player who just learned to play tennis. They can't take the ball on the rise. Just observe that. Why? It's harder. So we take it for granted. The pros are able to do that at varying degrees of success. But Schwartzman takes the ball on the rise so well. That's incredibly important. Um, what's another thing that he compensates? So that's a compensation for less power. Less power, take away time. That makes up for it. Another compensation. Hmm. The return is fascinating. The return is one of the marvels. The modern marvels of, of men's tennis is the Schwartzman return. It shows that the return is not so much about reach. No, Novak Djokovic, so hard to ace, so rangy that yes, he is aided by his reach. But Schwartzman shows you don't need good reach to, to be a great returner of serve. Schwartzman just somehow tees up that shot so well. What I would say is he has some of the best, he, he has some of the best racket talent on tour. He's just an unbelievable pure, pure ball striker. Uh, but congratulations to Diego Schwartzman for cracking the top 10. That is an unbelievable accomplishment at his tight, uh, at his height. And I applaud him, and what a great job. Swagat uh, has two questions for me. Uh, what do you think Novak could, could have and should have done differently against Rafa tactically in the final? I'm not saying it, it, it would have definitely worked, but I would have liked to see Nadal. Nope. I would have liked to see Djokovic try to play defensively and cut down the unforced errors. Again, you don't know if that would have worked or not. There's no way of knowing. But maybe putting that kind of pressure on Nadal would have got gotten Rafa out of the zone. Maybe it would have gotten Rafa to start playing worse if if Djokovic could um could have really sent the message across the court that he wasn't going to miss and that he was going to make Nadal work really, really hard to finish every single point. He never got to that point. Instead, he tried to he tried to really take matters into his own hands. He tried to take the racket out of Nadal's hands. And I would have liked to try to see him play more defensively, just as a, a change-up, just as a tinker, you know, an experiment. Two. Is it just me or has Novak become more interesting and more entertaining to watch now that he's uh, improved his touch, his volleys, his drop shots, and a slightly better forehand? I think so. There was a point in time where Djokovic was keeping it pretty simple on the court. I think 2018. And I think he is mixing it up and playing with more variety now, which is always fun. Bruno Alves, uh, you should talk a little bit about the ranking system this year, both the weekly ranking and the race. I know this year they are the same, uh, but you could explain in more detail and also give your opinion on it. I personally think it is not correct to have the year and number one uh, use rankings points from 2019. It should only be points from 2020, in my opinion. So I said earlier in the mailbag, I agree, the year end number one should only be about 2020, but the ATP rankings, which is, by the way, much more important than the year end number one, uh, that should be, I agree with the way the ATP handled it. You simply cannot punish a player for not being comfortable with traveling. You can't punish a player if their home country does not allow them to leave or come back due to the pandemic. 
And I also have trouble seeing, you know, players punished in terms of rankings points for um, f in the case that they test positive. I, I don't know. You need that safety net. You need that safety net. It is not dissimilar to large companies and small companies allowing their employees to work from home. These are just simple courtesies that I think all um, I think all companies are affording their employees. Tennis players are not employees. Yes, they are not. Uh, but still, I think it is a good, a good, and and it's not perfect. But I've said in the past, I think this is the best solution. Couple more here, folks. Do you think if Djokovic had been had beaten Tsitsipas in straight sets that he would have had more of a chance against Nadal, or was Nadal just too good in the final? Again, my read on Novak Djokovic's energy level was that he was discouraged by the way Nadal was playing. That was my read on it. It could have been that he felt physically or emotionally weary. He got that jolt of energy in the third set. And Novak was particularly listless and emotionally flat, didn't even get very upset. Again, my read on that is that he... he he wasn't getting upset because he felt like Nadal was playing so well, there was nothing he could do, and he just needed to wait for Nadal to stop playing so well. That was my read on it. Um, I also think that Nadal's match against Schwartzman was nearly as physical against Tsitsipas' match against Djokovic. Tsitsipas lost his legs in the fifth set, and it wasn't a competitive fifth set. And if you look at the match time overall, there was about a 40 to 45 minute difference between both semifinals. With that being said... Um, if it is the case that Djokovic was, uh, had less energy than he could have, it's Novak's fault. And I know you're not saying it's not Novak's fault, but it would be Novak's fault in that case. Um, now Novak probably didn't go to bed until 3 a.m. that night because he had the late match. So he went five sets. He had the late match. He had to stay up really late. Don't get me wrong. If you're comparing both semifinals, Nadal had the much cushier ride. Um, but, you know, my read on it is that is not the reason for Djokovic's low energy. This one from Footfault Tennis. The media, especially in the UK, in the UK seem to big up the Murray versus Vavrinka match, when for me it's clear Murray still has a long journey ahead. Do you think Murray can get back to a second week of a slam? And if so, what must he do to achieve this? Personally, I think he needs to build up back from the bottom, starting at challengers, as well as adopting a more aggressive Federer-like game style. Despite what he says, I just think he's trying to build himself up for a final decent run at Wimbledon before retirement. I'm starting to get to the point as well where I'd like to see Murray try to change things up in terms of how he plays because from the very jump coming back from hip surgery it just seems like the same old Murray playing quite defensively and really just putting himself in positions where he's going to do a lot of running and a lot of grinding and it's been a pleasure to watch him back on the court the, the way he fights so hard and he cares so much and he wears his emotion on, the, on his sleeve and he still has great skill that he's able to deploy with less consistency than we're used to. But I've really enjoyed watching Murray back on the court. I just think he needs to change something. So far, he's just playing like the Andy Murray of old. And it was a, a style of play that worked really well when he had his full, you know, his, his full capabilities physically. And now he doesn't have that, but he's playing the same style. So I do want to see Murray change styles. This last one from, from Roman, I do feel like we've already hit on this, but I will read it. To me, Novak is looking less fit, less durable, huge decrease in physicality, slower ground strokes, not willing to suffer as much. He, uh, his aura that he once used to have at being a beast and dismantling opponents is gone. Next gen aren't scared of him anymore. Sure, he plays at a higher level than them now, but you look at Tsitsipas uh, or how Tsitsipas took it to him and um, he had no reply. He was lucky that Tsitsi was cramping. Otherwise, boy, he could have easily lost in five. I don't know what he can do to fix this. I mean, he's 33, so he's not that old. 
Uh, do you think there's anything he can do, Gil, or is it just age catching up with him? I mean, Nadal looks as potent, as explosive as he used to look. So what's going on with Novak? Did he forget to take his vitamin supplements or something? Novak needs to... I think Novak gets the picture. He he knows he gets the point. Um, he needs to keep working on his spot serving. He needs to hit his second serve as well as he did in Australia. We haven't seen that post-pandemic. I shouldn't say post-pandemic. <laughs> the pandemic is ongoing. Post-ATP uh, pause... Um, and it's hard. I don't know if he can get more out of his forehand or not. I don't know. We got to see, but, um, I, I do think that he, uh, again, what I, I would reserve, I would go back to what I said in the beginning. I really want to see how he looks in 2021 and does his cardio, his um, ability to play long rallies, his durability, does it look better? Because I, I cannot argue with you if you say that Rafa Nadal is a little bit more equipped to keep short, uh, to keep points short than Novak Djokovic as they age. Other than the the serve, which I think Djokovic might be able to get to, uh, he might be able to beef that up a little bit. Um, better than Nadal will will ever get to. But I think Novak is finding ways to shorten points, but he just needs to also have the consistency. And I don't see Novak as a player who's ever going to really play like Federer, but I think maybe he can improve his serve plus one just like Nadal did. It'll be interesting. I got to see what he does in 2021 if, and if he looks to be in, in better shape. Um, again, I do think the observations are valid and that's not overreacting at, you know, about one match. It's not, it's truly, truly not. It has been this entire summer. He has been trying to shorten points and he has struggled with players who can keep the ball in the court, like Roberto Bautista Agut and Pablo Carreno Busta, who have great cardio and great consistency and have forced Novak to, you know, really just try to figure out ways to end the points. And instead of Novak being like, I know you're consistent. I know you're fit. I know you're tough, but I'm more tough and I can just hang in there and I can be patient and I can wait for my opportunity and then, you know, attack when the opportunity presents itself. That's not how he's played those matches. Instead, he's been like, oh, I don't really want to go toe to toe with you in, you know, in the grinded out game. You know, I'm going to really try to, I'm going to really try to take it to you and just figure out ways to grind you down um, physically. But I'm going to try to end points. But I would go back to like the Medvedev match. Watch the Medvedev match. Novak was in better shape in that match. He looked much better there. So let's uh, reserve our judgment about Novak's physicality until 2021, given the circumstances. All right. I uh, hit on some great topics. Again, I will try to respond to your comments. Um, I'll, I'll type out responses if I didn't get to yours. But again, I always really appreciate the um, engagement on these videos. And I very much appreciate um, you following, everyone following my coverage throughout Roland Garros. There was great growth in the, in the channel. And that was really good to see. And I had a blast doing it. It was a grind. This will be my last video until uh, Monday or Tuesday. But again, a big thank you goes out to all of you. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.
Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcast. Yes.